1787, the Constitutional Convention met in Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia, ostensibly to amend the Articles of Confederation, the first U.S. Constitution. The idea of amending the Articles was discarded, though, and the Assembly set about drawing up a new scheme of government. One area of disagreement between delegates from small states and those from large states was the apportionment of representation in the federal government. Edmund Randolph offered a plan known as the Virginia, or Large State Plan, which provided for a bicameral legislature, with representation of each state based on its population or wealth. William Patterson proposed the New Jersey, or Small State Plan, which provided for equal representation in Congress. Neither the large nor the small states would yield. Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman, among others, proposed a bicameral legislature with proportional representation in the lower house, the House of Representatives, and equal representation of the states in the upper house, the Senate. All revenue measures would originate in the lower house. That compromise was approved July 16, 1787. The Encyclopedia Britannica I'm so excited for this installment of Dig a Little Deeper, because I get to talk about one of my favorite songwriters of all time, the late, great John Prine. Today, we're analyzing his song, The Great Compromise, but before we can dig into the song, a brief history lesson. What caught my attention about this excerpt from the Encyclopedia Britannica was the bit about large states wanting to have representation based on population or wealth. We like to think of our founding fathers as being spiritually guided, morally upstanding men who were revolting against the governance of the British monarchy and unfair law. The truth is that they were wealthy landowners and businessmen who invested their financial interest in the independence of America as a country, and then sought out to protect and promote their financial interests following the Revolution and the implementation of the U.S. Constitution. In fact, when first groups wanted to settle in the New World and start a colony, they needed a royal charter to occupy the land. And the crown had an interest in promoting the wealthiest applicants because they had the greatest chance of success in establishing their colony and becoming a revenue stream for the British Empire. Keeping in mind, of course, that much of the land being colonized was already occupied by the native inhabitants of North America. These inhabitants were removed to transplant wealthy colonials and their business ventures, which were funded by joint stock companies co-owned by other wealthy parties in Great Britain. The idea that wealth supersedes other considerations is woven into the fabric of our history. It is, and always has been, a chief consideration of the wealthy class to maintain power. Let me introduce you to Kurt Anderson. He published a book in 2020 called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. He's one. Uh, Lewis Powell, a guy who was just as a, as a big-time lawyer in 1971, commissioned by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, wrote out this memo, this 40-some page memo, laying out, here's what we have to do to take back the power for big business. According to the summary, quote, Evil Geniuses examines coordinated efforts to implement conservative economical and political policies in the United States from the 1970s to 2020, and discusses how the resulting unfettered laissez-faire approach to capitalism has resulted in an extreme level of economic inequality. Uh, 
uh, one of the original players was uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman. But he wrote this extraordinary Friedman Doctrine uh, uh, pub, uh, essay that was published in, in the New York Times Magazine in 1970 saying, business people, forget all this social responsibility stuff, forget trying to improve the environment, forget trying to be less racist, all of it, profits are all that matter. That's Anderson in an interview with Amanpour and Company. In his book, Anderson levels accusations on an almost conspiratorial level. Ironically, that's what his previous book was about, American Conspiracy Theories. But this one is one that, according to Anderson, is true. That there was this group of people whose ideas on economics and government were blatantly favoring this super-wealthy class and were adopted at a national level. So you have an agreement during the Constitutional Convention that compromised equal state representation in the Senate with representation of the population in the House which was specifically designed to protect the economic interests of larger states. Remember, they wanted their representation to be by either population or wealth. And then they decided that any budgetary actions or financial decisions would begin there. The Great Compromise was about compromising states' representation with that of the wealthy class. And this, of course, is informed by the preferential treatment of the wealthy leading up to American independence. And years later, in the 1970s and 80s, the government is still actively making decisions with the benefit of the super-wealthy in mind, blatantly. This flippantly classist culture had a wide range of impact, but in many ways the impact is best illustrated by the government's treatment of American farmland. The history of American farmland goes something like this. Native Americans farm and forage on the land of the western and eastern United States until European settlers remove them in the east and replace them with colonies of, as you might recall, mostly wealthy figures. These same colonials and their heirs draw up the Constitution with its great compromise favoring representation for the wealthy in government. In 1862, Congress passes the first Homestead Act allowing citizens to claim 160 acres in exchange for a small fee. Homesteaders dispossess Native Americans of 246 million acres in the West. Nearly a quarter of today's Americans are related to people who acquired land through these laws. In 1865, Major General Sherman issues Special Field Orders No. 15, providing thousands of black Americans with 40-acre plots of tillable land part of a set of wartime declarations meant to help recently or soon-to-be freed slaves, but the orders were terminated after Lincoln's assassination. President Theodore Roosevelt establishes 150 national forests in 1901, stripping indigenous and Latino communities of access to traditional farming and hunting grounds. Agro-pastoral communities in New Mexico's Sangre de Cristo Mountains, for instance, are cut off from their farms and foraging grounds when the land becomes the Carson National Forest. In 1913, with 100,000 acres of California farmland operated by Japanese Americans, competitive white farmers and yellow peril propaganda fuel the passage of the state's alien land law, which bans the purchase and long-term leasing of land by those, quote, ineligible for citizenship. Between 1910 and 1920, black farming hit its peak. Black farmers owned more land, approximately 20 million acres, and comprised a greater share of the country's total farmers, 14%, than they ever would again over the next century. 
In the 1930s, white bureaucrats in county USDA offices systemically exclude black farmers from New Deal subsidies, leading to a deepening concentration of wealth in large white-owned farms. In the 1960s, as part of a broader backlash among the southern white elite, USDA programs were sharpened into weapons to punish civil rights activity, writes historian Pete Daniel. Cut off from federal aid, many black growers are forced to sell or abandon their land, contributing to the migration of black southerners to the north. By the mid-60s, less than 6% of the nation's farmers are black. Then, in the 1970s and 80s, Amid the same conspiratorial push to reclaim power for big business, what was then the Farmer's Home Administration cracks down on family farms. I got a call from a farmer from Mississippi. He said he was from Mississippi. He had a thick southern accent. And it might have been two in the morning. And he said, would you please help us? There are many farmers in Mississippi having the same problems. Would you please help us? And I said, can you call me tomorrow at the office? (laughs) And he said, I don't know if I can make it until then. That's Sarah Vogel giving an interview on Prairie Pulse in March of 2022. Vogel is the author of the book, The Farmer's Lawyer, The North Dakota Nine and the Fight to Save the Family Farm, which is a true story about her legal work representing farmers who had been harmed by these harsh policies. And the North Dakota Nine were uh, nine farmers from North Dakota who exemplified what was happening to farmers in the early 80s at the hands of a federal agency then called the Farmers Home Administration. They were trying to eliminate all loans to family farmers, and um, there was an enormous crackdown on loan collections, a big push for foreclosures, and these farmers and Thousands of other farmers were caught up in the big uh, chaos and storm and collections for closures. They wanted to eliminate loans to small family farms. In favor of what? Large-scale agriculture, farming corporations, our modern equivalent of the joint stock companies who supplanted the Native American people of the eastern United States. The farmland of the United States is taken from Native Americans given to wealthy business owners, who then hand it over to the government who represent those wealthy business owners, who then take even more land from Native Americans and give it to white settlers, and then take it from poor white family farmers and give it to corporations. Boy, I didn't come here to save the Odell brothers from sloppy bookkeeping and questionable farming practices. I come here to save a way of life. Say they're all in it together. Who is? Hollywood, Wall Street, Boston Market. But that big cap. Caffeinated. I need the wall. What you're hearing there is the Oscar winning short film from actor, writer, and director Ray McKinnon, The Accountant. In the movie, two brothers are working together to think up a way to save their family farm from foreclosure. They hire a shady accountant whose mission is to save the American family farm one bogus insurance claim at a time. And it turns out he has some pretty unique ideas of his own. 
about how they ended up in this predicament. The bit sounds like the ravings of a madman, conspiracies implicating the Grand Ole Opry and Boston Market in this attempt to make real country people forget who they are and take their land. Who's Boston Market? You don't know soon enough. Praying, actually. What is? They're praying! One world, one culture, one corporation, whatever you want to call it. First, they, they take away the little man's ability to produce his own food by devising a system where he's got access to easy credit with easy terms. Once they get him hooked, then they change the rules. Suddenly, they want their money they wanted yesterday. So this little farmer works hard, plants more crops, fans more hogs. But then, like magic, the price drops. Supply and demand, they say. He's offered 100 an acre, what cost him 200 to grow? The greater his yield, the further he goes into debt with them banking corporations till he's ground by. That's when a, a farming corporation comes in, takes this fella's land, leaving him with no choice but to go to town to work for some manufacturing corporation. Or retail. It's amazing at how specifically what happened, build think tanks, take over the media, influencing universities, uh, uh, become seriously militant UCEOs about lobbying for things in Washington, create more lobbying, change the judiciary. That's our big uh, option. He, it, was, it, it was like something in a, in, a, in a bad novel where, you know, oh, this is ridiculous. This is too on the nose. Over the years, despite pleas from farmers from, and, and from um, organizations such as the state and local national farmers unions, there's been almost no antitrust law enforcement. So farmers are stuck buying seeds from only a handful of companies. Farm machinery, only a handful of farm machinery dealers. Um, they, they, they sell to basically there's only like four meat packers. Take there's CEO pay. It was 50 times the average CEO made than his or her. Eh, probably not so much her back then, but made 50 times as much as the average employee. Then suddenly it was decided, not because it had been illegal, but just because the norms changed and greed is good as of the 1980s, the average CEO was making 200, 300, 500, today as much as a thousand times as much as his or her employee. That's, that's what happened. Because somehow we were, enough of us were hoodwinked to think, no, this is just the way it works. This is the free market. This is the way it's always been. But it wasn't the way it's always been until these guys hijacked it and made it work worse and made it work well only for the, for the relatively well-to-do or the extremely well-to-do. And we've had a stupendous loss of the middle-sized family farmers. It used to be that there were a great number of middle-sized family farmers, and they were the ones that kept our main streets and our small towns alive, and now that's hollowed out. So you have, have a, a large number of very small Part, maybe I'll call them part-time farmers or simply landowners. And then there's a, an increasing share of very large uh, farmers. But I would like to see... The United States government, with influence from prominent wealthy parties of the day, created an environment that took land from poor people and put it in the hands of the wealthy, while also allowing a growing discrepancy in pay between the extremely wealthy and the increasingly smaller middle class. Back in 1782, the Founding Fathers made a deal 
to represent the interests of wealthy businessmen in larger states. And this is what America was founded on, a compromise. You see what they done, boys. What is ain't and what ain't is. They turned it all upside down and y'all didn't even notice. You're listening to Dig a Little Deeper, the podcast about the hidden meanings in some of the greatest songs in American traditional music and beyond. Disclaimer, I do not own or claim to own any of the music in this episode. Any use of the recordings or lyrics of the song or songs featured herein is protected under fair use for the purposes of education and criticism. Please take a moment to listen to the song for this episode, The Great Compromise, by John Prine. Little girl who's almost a lady. She had a way with all the men in her life. Every inch of her blossom and beauty. She was born on the fourth of July. Well, she lived in an aluminum house trailer. And she worked in a jukebox saloon And she spent all the money that I give her Just to see the old man in the moon I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awake in the dawn's early light but much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the great compromise Well, we'd go out on Saturday evenings To the driving on Route 41 And it was there that I first suspected that she was doing what she'd already done. She said, Johnny, won't you get me some popcorn? And she knew I had to walk pretty far. And as soon as I passed through the moonlight, she hopped into I used to sleep at foot of old glory And awake in the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the great compromise Well, you know beat up that fella but it was her that had hopped into his car many times I fought to protect her but this time she was going too far 
Now some folks, they call me a card Cause I left her at the driving that night But I'd rather have names thrown at me Than to fight for a thing that ain't right I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awake in a darned early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the great compromise Well, she writes all the fellas love letters Saying greetings, come and see me real soon And they go and line up in the bar room Spend the night in that sick woman's room But sometimes I get awful lonesome And I wish she was my girl instead But she won't let me live with her And she makes me live in my head I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awake in the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened I was a victim of the great compromise. Humor me for a moment. For the duration of this critique, let's assume that whenever you hear the word she, or any reference to the female character, you should replace it with America, and that in any place the narrator says I, or me, or refers to themselves in some way, you can replace that with the working taxpayer. Now, let's listen to that first verse again. A little girl who's almost a lady She had a way with all men in her life Every inch of her blossom and beauty She was born on the 4th of July I'm going to pause it there for a moment. I knew a girl who was almost a lady, and she had a way with all the men in her life. A girl who is almost a lady is someone underage, and if she had a way with all the men in her life, that implies a strong relationship with those men, and possibly an inappropriate one. Every inch of her blossomed in beauty. She was born on the 4th of July. This lets us know, with a sledgehammer blow, that this is America we're talking about. Well, she lived in an aluminum house trailer And she worked in a jukebox saloon And she spent all the money that I give her Just to see the old man in the moon she lived in an aluminum house trailer. Well, if this is America we're talking about, that could refer to 
prefabrication that she lives in something that looks nice on the outside, but it can't last. And it's also a universal symbol of the working class. And speaking of representing the working class, she works in a jukebox saloon. Now, this is a place for the everyman, but also it's a place for shady dealings. Prine might as well be saying that she works in smoky back rooms here. And she spends all the money I give her just to see the old man in the moon. Why would I need to give her money if she has a steady job? This could be an allusion to taxes, and that the line is implying she, America, is wasting the taxpayer's money on addictions and fantasies. Those addictions can have many forms, as we'll find out throughout the song, such as media or foreign interests, and these addictions are really the root of the complexity of the narrator's relationship with his country. Now, as a songwriter, the way that I read these lyrics makes it feel as though one verse flows very easily into the next, and since the chorus is the same melody and structure as the verses, I'm going to leave it until the very end, as I think that that likely is a better reflection of the process that Prine took to write the song. So, here's the second verse. Well, we'd go out on Saturday evenings To the driving on Route 41 And it was there that I first suspected That she was doing what she'd already done Now, remember I said these verses flow into one another. So here we have, she spends all the money I give her just to see the old man in the moon followed up with, we'd go out on Saturday evenings to the drive-in on Route 41. We get the idea that the fantasies and addictions are perhaps represented by this sort of consumerism, owning a car and burning gas to go to the movies. And it was there that I first suspected she was doing what she'd already done. It's in this moment of consumerism that the narrator catches the first glimpse of the underhanded dealings that were already occurring before he was made aware. Now, you could almost say that Prine was implying that the entertainment industry made the narrator realize that America had a dark secret. And as a side note, artistic expression in the form of visual media was used to establish the wealthy class, but also served to inform the lower class. She said, Johnny, won't you get me some popcorn? And she knew I had to walk pretty far And as soon as I passed through the moonlight She hopped into Florence for drum Johnny, won't you get me some popcorn? And she knew I had to walk pretty far. Well, that's trickle-down economics. If you, the taxpayer, do for me, you may get something in return. That if you invest your energy in this, that maybe it'll pay back. And she knows that she's asking a lot for the narrator to have to work that hard. And then that task is so hard, your job or your career, that it's distracting you from what's really going on. She uses this task 
to deceive the narrator, and then goes and hooks up with the nearest wealthy entity with materialistic interests. And who's driving that foreign sports car? It's one of those men in her life, those foreign entities or countries, largely European, that all wanted and still want a piece of America. And this happens as soon as the narrator walks through the moonlight. So potentially after he's out of range of these consumerist influences, or perhaps when he's simply no longer in America's field of interests. Well, you know, I could have beat up that fella. But it was her that had hopped into his car. Many times I fought to protect her. But this time she was going too far. Well, you know, I could have beat up that fella. He's saying I could have gone to war because that's what's expected of the American male. You're expected to beat up the guy that steals your girl. And I've done that before. And maybe I would again, if it were for a just cause. But not this. Why would I beat him up when she's the one who did it? She's the one who took my money, spent my money, and then abandoned me. Now some folks, they call me a card. Cause I left her at the driving that night. But I'd rather have names thrown at me and fight for a thing that ain't right. Some people call me a coward because I'm a conscientious objector. This is reminiscent of Tom T. Hall's song, Turn It On, Turn It On, Turn It On. Johnny got up one morning, he went down to the company store. The song is about a man who decides not to fight in the war in the year 1944, when it would have been highly frowned upon. People said John was a slacker, cause he wouldn't fight in their war. A man wasn't much if he wouldn't fight back in 1944. The doctor said John was just too sick to go, but the people said that he was a coward and one of the men making fun. The song's protagonist ends up shooting a man who ridicules him, and then he gets sentenced to death by the electric chair. But Johnny gets to die with the peace of mind that he proved he was no coward. John said I ain't no coward. And the people know that I won't run. Then Johnny smiled up at the warden and said, Turn it on, turn it on, turn it on. So the narrator in Prime's song leaves his girl at the drive-in. Is this a reference to leaving America to avoid war? Or is it deeper? Has he abandoned the American dream? And that brings us to the last verse. As she writes all the fellas love letters Send greetings, come and see me real soon And they go and line up in the barroom She writes all the fellers' love letters, 
she stays in touch with her foreign contacts, keeps them close at hand. And they're willing to keep coming back over and over to spend a night in that sick woman's room. A scathing review of American government addiction to these underhanded dealings. But sometimes I get off lonesome And I wish she was my girl instead But she won't let me live with her And she makes me live in my head Sometimes I get awful lonesome, sure. Sometimes I get nostalgic for the good old days when I thought I believed in the American dream. Here's Kurt Anderson again. So there's there, there's there's useless nostalgia and, and, and dangerous and pathological nostalgia. And then there's looking at history. And those are two different things. Uh, uh, and, 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 and we have to be careful not to say, oh, everything in the past is in the past and it's no good. That's not true either. There, 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 are, just, there are parts of the past that we can look to uh, as models for the future. But she won't let me live with her. And she makes me live in my head. She won't let me, morally, take part in her wealth and success. And she force-feeds me nonsense and makes me live introvertedly and divorced from reality. And finally, our course. I used to sleep at the foot of old glory And awaken at dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened was a victim of the great compromise. I used to sleep at the foot of old glory. I used to sleep with the American flag hanging above my bed, and as I slept, I would dream the American dream. I used to believe in America, and I would wake up in the dawn's early light, a clever, subtle reference to the American national anthem. But much to my surprise, when I opened my eyes, well, I was shocked to learn, when I finally had my eyes opened, that I was a victim of a system of government that compromised its morality in favor of wealth. That I, the American working taxpayer, was an unwitting participant in the machinations that brought about my own ruin. But I ain't done with him, because, say, boy, this farmer still has his, his culture, and that scares him. His roots, based in independence, even rebelliousness, his countryness, if you will. So what do they do about that? Well, that's where the multimedia corporations step in. They begin to bombard their, their new company man with caricatures and stereotypes of himself. Gomer Powell, Dukes of Hazzard, Beverly Hillbillies, Hay Hall, so on and so forth, till finally he, he can't trust his own reality. He don't know what it is no more. He starts acting country instead of being country. Until one day he'll, 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 he'll be like a, like a, a Scotsman who, who puts on his kilt once a year to celebrate his Scottishness. Until, until finally, this man, this farmer who once worked on the land and with the land can be controlled. 
so he won't question his purpose in making rivets or sitting in front of a computer screen from nine to five, five days a week for 40 years till he gets downsized and dies. Takes his severance pay and retires to Branson, Missouri. It seems absurd to think that Ray McKinnon's accountant is telling us the truth. His crazed rambling seems more like the tinfoil hat brand of conspiracy. But he leaves us with this thought. So... Then, then there ain't this big conspiracy really going on, is there? If a man builds a machine, and that machine conspires with another machine built by another man, are those men conspiring? I used to sleep at the foot of old glory and awaken the dawn's early light But much to my surprise when I opened my eyes I was a victim of the great compromise You've been listening to Dig a Little Deeper, a podcast about the hidden meanings in some of the greatest songs in American music and beyond. This podcast is made possible by the Carter County Public Library and listeners like you, and by the Olive Hill Chamber of Commerce, the leading force in Olive Hill's economic development. Proprietors of the historic Olive Hill Train Depot open Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you, and join us next time for Dig a Little Deeper.